Pushkin. Hey there, Against the Rules listeners. I've got some news to share with you. In February, I'm releasing a new Pushkin Industries audiobook edition of Liar's Poker and a companion podcast series called Other People's Money. Liar's Poker was my first book. I wrote it in the 1980s when I was 27 years old and working at Solomon Brothers as a bond trader. I thought at the time that I was capturing a moment of excess on Wall Street that we'd never see again. Shows what I know. Recording the whole of Liar's Poker for the first time made me think about how much Wall Street has and hasn't changed. It also got me thinking about my own evolution as a writer. And that's how other people's money came to be. It will feature conversations with characters from the book, and some of them will reveal their real names for the first time. I'll also talk with George Saunders and Ira Glass, two storytellers I admire, who helped me to figure out what it means to find your voice. The podcast will be available in February right here in the Against the Rules feed. You'll be able to find the Liar's Poker audiobook on pushkin.fm and wherever audiobooks are sold. Until then, I want to share another podcast you'll love, Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso. It's the latest addition to the Pushkin family. Sam's a whiz kid, about the same age I was when I wrote Liar's Poker, and he's endlessly curious. Sam talks with artists, activists, and politicians to learn how they arrived at the place they're at today and where they hope to go tomorrow. Earlier this year, I talked to Sam about my latest book, The Premonition, but we also ended up discussing my life, growing up in New Orleans, falling in love with writing at Princeton, and later working as a bond salesman on Wall Street. I shared my approach to creating a relationship with the people I write about. I also shared a favorite poem from my high school baseball coach, and I talked about the role of luck in my career. You can hear more episodes of Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, here's the episode. Michael Lewis, thank you for being here. I think it's a pleasure. <laughs> You're uncertain. Well, how can I know? But we'll revisit this subject in about an hour. Okay, great. You know, to set up your new book, I thought we would go back to a kind of premonition you had in June of 2019 on the Ezra Klein show. This is what you said of the Trump presidency, but most importantly, how we may go about restoring faith in our institutions, and what may need to happen in order for them to change. Do you mind if we play this clip? I have no idea what you're about to play, but yes, go okay. ahead. Okay. The longer he's there and the more he pushes or pays no attention uh, or puts people who are actively dismantling their enterprises, the, the, the more likely something really bad will happen. The only way you head in another direction is to have a a real catastrophe. It takes a great depression to start build, building new institutions from. Uh, that's what worries me, is that, is that um, it's gonna take a lot more pain. It's gonna take 10 million people dying in some pandemic. It's gonna take, you know, whatever it is, things have to get really dark before they get better. What did you make of that? Well, it's, that guy's depressing. I don't want to. I don't want to listen to that guy anymore. He upsets me. <laughs> Can we get some other guest? So that's the first thought. Uh, this, 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 the second thought is um, the number I picked out of thin air: ten million. One thought I have now, as horrible as it is, 
is perhaps we haven't suffered sufficient pain. I, I don't know. I don't know. But when I imagined a calamity that would biff the country in another direction, I imagined something that affected everybody kind of equally and that, that you couldn't hide from it if you were privileged. You couldn't hide from it if you were rich. Uh, you couldn't hide from it if you were young. And that it would create a fear that would motivate people to see what they needed to see about the, 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 the government, about the, tool, the tools we have to manage existential risk that are the only tools. And there's been some of that fear created. I just don't know if it's enough. Uh, and, and, and I think it's kind of hard right now to see. Clearly the society's moving. I just can't tell how permanent and how fast the movement is. How much of that kind of premonition in 2019 played a role into this new book of yours? Well, it created a sense of obligation in a funny way, which is not a good way to start a book. I mean, I would not recommend anybody have the motives that I have at the start of this thing. Normally my motives are, are kind of pure in the sense that like I've stumbled onto something new that doesn't have a whole lot to do with what I've already written. And, and my interest is so great, it, it propels me. In this case, I'd written a book, The Fifth Risk, about the potential consequences of the mismanagement of the federal government and asking the question like, what happens if something bad happens? And then something bad happens and, you, and then you see it. It's sort of like, yeah, I should be writing a book about this. I lucked out in that, yes, that I should be writing a book about this. It ended up being a very different book than what I would have guessed. What did you guess? I guessed that I was going to have to move my family to Washington and write a kind of pathology of the Trump administration. That what I, the story I would be telling would be one of kind of how the instruments of the federal government got busted and what we're going to do about it there. And instead... The characters who landed in my lap led me to a different story. And it wasn't, it wasn't an ideologically driven story in that they were basically doctors, I mean, these characters. And their politics are actually kind of such as they are all over the map, hard to classify. But they had all had lived experience before the Trump administration that had suggested that if this kind of thing happens, the result's going to be bad that you didn't need Trump for it to be bad. They'd all say Trump made it worse, but that Trump to make Trump the center of the story would have been a big mistake. It would have been a, it had been a falseness about it. And so it, the, 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 it was a bigger, more systematic problem of which Trump was mostly symptom, a little bit cause. The central question of your new book seems to be around why, despite having the most money, gifted minds, a robust public health infrastructure, did the United States fail so miserably at handling the pandemic? Could you walk us through a kind of truncated version of your answers to this? Yes. The first thing to establish is that we did handle it badly. And it's four, we got roughly 4% of the world's population and roughly 20% of the deaths. With so many resources that before the pandemic, we were ranked by a panel of experts to be best prepared for one. The Lancet, uh, the British medical journal, made the point that if we had just performed as well as the average of the G7 countries, there'd be almost 200,000 American lives today, alive, Americans alive today who aren't. The answer as to why it was bad, first, 
the, the way health is communicable disease is controlled in this country, it's actually a very local thing. It's local public health officers. The CDC does not have control of the local public health officers any kind of direct way. It has weird sort of indirect influences. Um, but it isn't like we have a system. What we have is several thousand disconnected nodes who are under-resourced for a couple of generations and not wired up together. They're not, they're not, they don't form an army. It's like several thousand individual soldiers. So the mechanism for a unified response is already kind of not there because uh, we don't have a, a national public health system. Second, the institution that is meant to lead the response and sort of sort of corral these people, uh, the CDC, has steadily drifted from being essentially disease battlefield command, as its name suggests, which it, at once upon a time, I think it probably did do well. I mean, it eradicated smallpox back in the 60s and 70s, uh, but, but has become, for some pretty specific reasons, I think, more of an academic institution, less interested than in engaging in the battle and dealing with the fog of war than in waiting for all the data so they can write a good academic paper about it that's not wrong. And in trying to be precisely right, they end up being very wrong because by the time they're willing to take action, the battle's over. How much of that has to do with what happened in 1976 in the flu outbreak? Well, I think some. I mean, I think if you want to start the modern story, and this isn't my telling, this is actually old timers at the CDC. They said they noticed a shift in the institution. In 1976, there was a very real threat of a swine flu pandemic. Some soldiers at Fort Dix, New Jersey died. One died, a bunch of them had it in, in the end of the tail end of the flu season. And they had never in known history had been a new strain of flu like this that had been proven transmissible and lethal that didn't result in some form of a pandemic. So you had kind of general expert agreement that you that we better move, like develop a vaccine and get it and store it not in a refrigerator because it takes forever to get it out across the country, but store it in people's arms. So we set out to vaccinate the entire population and the pandemic didn't happen. No one knows why. No one still knows why. And uh, several people died of the vaccine. The, the person who had championed this aggressive approach, sort of like willing to commit a sin of commission, was David Sensor, the director of the CDC. He, he lost his job and was publicly humiliated. And that job was put basically on a collision course with what happened. It ceased to be a, a permanent civil service job and became a, a politically appointed job. The Reagan administration did that. So it's the moment where all of a sudden the person who's leading this institution is not drawn from the general pool of qualified candidates, but drawn from the pool of people who are politically acceptable to whoever the president is, is not kind of implicitly there for maybe a pretty long stretch, but is only going to be there as long as the person in the White House is there. And the decisions he makes are clearly like on a very, he's on a very short leash, a shorter leash. They're renters. They're renters instead of homeowners. That that starts to change the the demeanor of the institution. And it becomes more politically sensitive, more risk averse. Now, there are a lot of other things going on in the culture that push it in that direction. But that I think that's the, that's the start of the story. And at least it's the beginning of an answer to a question, if it's this way now, how did it ever get the reputation of being able to control disease? And and the answer is it changed, that it was once one thing and it's now kind of another thing. It's funny, when 
people talk about our handling of H1N1. They refer to it as, as, as being handled fairly well. Can you walk us through your understanding of, of what happened in 2009? The poor, you know, the poor Obama administration. The guy rolls into the White House. He's got a financial crisis and two wars, and it's a mess. And then someone walks in. Carter Mesher walks into the old offices and says, "We have a pandemic too." And Rahm Emanuel, his chief of staff, looks up and says, "What's next, Locus?" Uh, and but but it was a very peculiar situation because the national strategy was flu happens somewhere else in the world, virus occurs somewhere else in the world, and we have a week or two before it's here. What happened in this case was outbreak in Mexico where people are dying in the ICU and the same strain is identified in Southern California. It's already here. And um, the question is what to do. And the question of what to do is tied to how transmissible and how lethal, right? And the question of lethality was it was just virtually impossible to answer. That it, it, it looked, through one lens, it looked terrifying. There are reports from ICUs in Mexico and in Argentina that sounded like, oh my God, this thing is ripping through the population and killing people. But of course, an ICU in a country like that, funnel, it funnels a lot, of, a lot of the badness is funneled. So you may be getting a distorted picture. You don't, it's not like you have the luxury of waiting months that if the thing is going to be that bad, you better act. So on the one hand, they were getting advice from well, one of the main characters in my book, that you, we should close schools for a couple of weeks so we know what, until we know what we're dealing with because we know schools are especially efficient at transmitting virus. So just to slow it down. And the CDC made the decision that, no, this isn't so bad. And they were right. But their advice was all geared towards like not making a commotion. And in the end, what happens is we actually, people probably kind of even forget this, we had a pandemic. A huge number of Americans, many, tens of millions of Americans were infected with the swine flu that year, that new strain. It just wasn't very lethal. And what one of my characters says to Obama at the end of it was, it wasn't that we dodged a bullet, it's that nature shot us with a BB gun. And I think the lesson that comes out of that, that it's the best, the sort of like the best first step is a cautious first step, do less, not do more. It turned out being the right move, but the wrong lesson. It's like built in to our institutions, to our bureaucracy, not to make the other kind of mistake. And I think that to the extent there's an institutional memory, like that's probably in the back of the minds of the CDC. Look how much trouble we avoided. We, we said it wasn't that big a deal. And then they do it all over again this time. And yet you found someone working in medicine and charity, Dean, that was completely open to uh, taking risks. And, and in fact, since childhood, was a young girl who, who would say things like, I like crisis. Share what what she kind of brought you into uh, upon meeting her. Well, in the first place, the whole idea of someone kind of growing up with the sense of communicable disease being a calling from a very early age, but doing it from the place she did it, did it which was very poor, I grew up in poverty, in a community, an evangelical Christian community that was really run by the church and her family was really run by the church in some way that discouraged her from getting an education. And even though she develops this passion in microbiology and so, and, and that she resists this and forces her way both through college and through medical school at great personal cost 
basically being excommunicated by the community for pursuing all this, and ends up um, in the actual position of controlling disease. It starts in, in, first in Santa Barbara County. For me, for like in the first place, she's like, I'm writing about a war, and she is a soldier who's been in the trenches. And most of the interviews I'm seeing on TV or in print are from kind of like armchair generals, like people who, are, who never actually engaged with disease on the ground. They've never really done it. Maybe most of them never even set foot inside of a local health office. And there they are in the green rooms of America, pontificating. Whereas this soldier who's got blood and dirt and grime all over her from the trenches and has been shot and shot people, uh, comes and tells me what it's really like. That's what she felt like to me. You said of her, the decisions she was forced to make were less like, say, those by a card counter at a blackjack table and more like the ones made by a platoon leader in combat. Yes. The difference between those two decisions is the card counter, who's really good at it, knows exactly the odds. So the, the cards tell you how to bet. You almost, once you've made the calculation, you don't have any decision to make in a funny way. They're rules. They're rules. On the battlefield, maybe they're rules, but you have nothing like the information you have at the blackjack table. That you're, you're dealing with fragments and partials, and you're dealing with them necessarily in that it's not an option to just say, oh, I'll just wait until the fog clears. Um, because if you've waited until the fog clears, you're overrun. So the nature of the uncertainty is different. And so the degree of nerve it takes to make the decision is also different. I mean, I love card counters. Uh, some of my best friends are card counters. But that, that's going to be the headline of this podcast. Michael Lewis, some <laughs> of his best friends are card counters. It's absolutely true. Some of my best friends are card counters. But the nerve is sort of like getting the nerve to, to summoning the nerve to possibly get your knees chopped off by the casino. The actual act of counting the cards and all that, it's not that, it's sort of, it's automatic in, in a way that the decisions charity has to make are not. And the stakes, the stakes are, and the card counter loses money. If charity's wrong, people die. And if she's really wrong, maybe she dies. Uh, so the stakes are way, way up there. And it really did feel, I know it, it sounds melodramatic. I felt like I was watching a soldier at war, watching her do, uh, re kind of retracing steps that she had, where she had been when she was serving as a local public health officer. Now, this is a woman, for context, who's five foot six, very slender, when she is working in a field mostly dominated by men, they are often shocked by her, by her presence, by her um, sort of persistence, in part because of how she looks. And, and she says, the inside doesn't match the outside. Men think my spirit animal is a bunny and it's a fucking dragon. Yeah, she didn't say it as calmly as you just said it. I, I can do it more frantically if you want. <laughs> you, no, you have to do it. Think Jennifer Lawrence in The Hunger Games and you more or less get the tone. There's no chance I'm going to be like Jennifer Lawrence in The Hunger Games in, in, in any way, in any way. So, so she's, this, is, this is right. In the places where medicine met public policy, that it was a very male place. And she was constantly in a room with people who knew less than she did about something. Say how to control tuberculosis. And those people were constantly explaining to her things that, in spite of that, that she was constantly 
like being condescended to by her inferiors. And that's an irritating situation. Have you ever been condescended to by your inferiors? You know that feeling? I think she lived with it. I think she, I think where you know this person actually does not know anything like what I know about this subject and they're trying to explain it to me. And in the bargain that she was almost always the bravest person in the room, like the person who's most likely to turn to the person to her right and say, come on, grow a pair. And so the combination led to, as you can imagine, some conflict. Lots of conflict. <laughs> yes. The thing she says, though, that I want to kind of pinpoint is that the inside doesn't match the outside. And something you've often said about yourself is, I don't look the way I'm wired. And it struck me that in describing charity, I was reminded of you and how you must wade through the world, not as a five foot six slender woman, but... I have, that's what's inside me. Inside of me is a five foot six slender woman. You figured it out, man. <laughs> so I think you're what you're saying. The point you're making is well, is it's startling to me and it's well taken that, uh, and I think, but I think a lot of people may feel this way that they're judged by surface appearance rather than what's in, what they feel inside. And I, and I just, you know, from a, you know, but the, from the moment I was actually kind of being really stereotyped in life, which I felt happened starts happening around 17, uh, where I'm aware of it, you know, like really aware of it, I play the role of untroubled, shallow preppy. And I look the role of untroubled, shallow preppy. And I, I'm happy to accept shallow. Uh, it, it, like maybe I have, a, I should have a sign around me that says no diving. But in my life, I mean, actual untroubled, shallow preppies tend to just like to hang out with other untroubled, shallow preppies. And those are like the last people I like to hang out with. That, that I, I'm drawn to really complicated people. And I'm drawn to really powerful emotion. And I experience com complexity and, and, and emotion. And so I, I'm happy to like skate through life um, looking a certain way. But I don't feel the way I'm, I don't feel the inside, the character I'm perceived to be on the outside. So in that sense, I kind of related to her. Do you think that perception of you as a shallow, untroubled preppy has anything to do with the fact that your family motto, which is passed down from generation to generation on the coat of arms, is, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to let you say what it is. <laughs> you know, if you're going to like make the case for the prosecution, you're going to win. You're going to convict me as a, as a shallow, untroubled preppy, because yes, my father, my whole life would say to my amusement at certain times that the coat of arms, the Lewis coat of arms had this Latin on it. And he said, he would say, do you know what that means? What that means, what that says is, um, our, it's our family motto, do as little as possible and that unwillingly, for it is better to receive a slight reprimand than to perform an arduous task. Now, hold on a sec. It was about 19, at age 19, when I discovered he just made that up and just, just said it and, and just get vast. That tells you something about actually where I come from, that I have a father who made that up. <laughs> and deep down, he doesn't think that. What I've got is a father who's got a great sense of irony. 
And uh, that's a different thing from being a father who's wedded to the idea of doing nothing. (laughs) You once said about growing up in New Orleans, I grew up in a world that I loved, and it was a world that was outside of American culture, one that American culture was clearly hostile towards. I could see that my father's way of life was unsustainable. It was unsustainable not to care very much about what you did for a living. It was not a success culture. It makes you question success when something you feel is very successful on a very deep emotional level or by the standards of the world, a failure. Yes. I said that and I haven't changed my mind. I mean, I just, I, it was, it's always been, I think, a source of strength for me as a writer. It's certainly been a useful tool that though I'm writing often about arenas of American ambition, I'm not really of those arenas. I'm from a place where really it was like who your mama was. It's that, that people judged you to the extent they judged you, judged too strong a word. They knew you by your family. And there were a web of intricate family relations that defined you. And the idea that you would break free of those definitions by something you did, something you achieved, was, it was inconceivable. I mean, to this day, when I go to New Orleans, I'm, st- I'm, you know, yeah, I'm a writer, but I'm Tom and Diana Lewis's son, and uh, and inter- and thus interpreted by my by, and and I could spend weeks in New Orleans trying to get someone to take me seriously without without succeeding, so that's just a different attitude towards life, and I loved it. I growing up, I just I didn't have, I mean, I eventually sort of developed ambition, but it I didn't it wasn't there all the time. Like one of the things that. I mean, it's different from my my life and my children's lives. Is it, they have forced upon them enormous anxiety to, to like you're supposed to achieve, and no one even no one ever suggested that to me that I was supposed to achieve something. Do you think you forced it on them? I've tried not to. I, I you know it, it's it is an unfortunate byproduct of being a successful author. Like my books are out there and I'm on TV and all that crap. Uh, that they see me as a success. And it probably, they internalize it as, well, I have to be a success too. And I, I, that, so in that sense, maybe I do, but I try to explain to them that, that the success should just be thought of as like, whatever, it's a byproduct of doing something I really love doing. And the, the goal is to move through life in a way that you don't, you don't miss the thing that you really love to do, that you don't walk away from it by mistake, that, you, that you're alive to it when it walks in, to, in the front door. And we shall see if I've succeeded in, in getting that message across. But I think you walked into a door and fell in love first in 1982 during your thesis uh, at Princeton. I believe it's called Donatello and the Antique. Is that the first time you felt this kind of complete infatuation with the thing you wanted to do. Yes. And I, I didn't, it was so strange. It's like someone figuring out their sexuality, right? It, it, it was so like new, such a new sensation. By the way, no one's ever described their thesis project as. <laughs> <laughs> I bet people who were close to me then detected the, how transported I was by the experience. I had never written for school newspapers. I didn't have any like sense. I want to see my name in print, any of that. I'd never been encouraged by any teacher to be a writer. And no, no one ever in my entire life had said, Michael, wow, you have a way of 
turning a phrase. Nothing. What did they say about you? Pay attention, Michael. <laughs> or, 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 the truth is, I had moments as a student, but it was more, well, that was original. That was, that was what I would get. When things were going good with a, with a teacher, when there was an A on the top of the paper, it was like, this is an original piece of work. And so that, that I had a little of that, but it, so I sit down to write this book. If, if, if the thesis is not a trivial thing. It, it, if I showed it to you, it's a book. It's a, it's a 50,000 word book. And it, what it is, was total immersion in a subject where I felt, however bizarrely, irrationally, that I was saying something totally original that was important. And, um, and I immersed myself in it. And the, the, so the mistake I made coming out of it was first thinking, oh, this means I'm supposed to be an art historian. And my thesis advisor, who was fabulous, said, you, there, you can't be an art historian, basically because there aren't going to be any. Uh, th th this is a dying industry, and I, I can't, I would not wish it upon my worst enemy. So he taught me out of that. And then he says, at the defense, this was a very funny moment. I was, I this is how I knew I woke up to the idea of writing. I wanted to hear how well written my thesis was. I, I didn't want just a good grade. I wanted him saying, I want him saying, this was beautifully written. And so he didn't say that. So when I asked, I said, so what did you think of the writing? And he looked at me and said, put it this way, don't try to make a living at it. Now, now, so he, I, I took that it, it, as not a blow, but like a challenge. And I went and tried to make a living at it. And I eventually have, but it was, it was a, you know, a strange course. I left college and started willy-nilly submitting articles to magazines, hoping to get published. And it was several years before anything happens like that. You eventually take a job at Solomon Brothers in 1985, I believe. And I want to quote how the New York Times described you in 1985 upon your first marriage. This is what they wrote of you. Mr. Lewis, an associate at Solomon Brothers, Inc. in New York, expects to be transferred to London shortly. He is an alum of the Isidore Newman School in New Orleans. His father is a partner in the New Orleans law firm of Monroe and Lehman. N nothing in there says anything about writing. And are you laughing at um, the description or me bringing it up? I'm, I'm laughing at you bringing it up because I don't think I ever read that. There's nothing in there that's false. It's all true. And that was, I guess, who I was. But when I sat down for the first day of the training program at Solomon Brothers, I, there was a friend, a guy who became a good friend of mine. He from he come from the mid Midwest, and he had all those decent Midwestern values. And he sits down next to me, and he says, "I came because um, I, I'm in love with the mortgage bond market, and I really want to be in the mortgage bond market, and this is the place." And I said, "Who I was?" And he said, "Well, why'd you come?" And I said, "I'm here to write a book." <laughs> Now, I don't remember this conversation, but he swears it happens. And I think it's possible that I walked in there already thinking, like, the only reason I'm here is to get experiences in life so I might write about things that happened to me. And I don't remember it being quite so self-conscious, but I, even though I was at Solomon Brothers, I was writing at night in my spare time, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Do you think because you presented as this untroubled preppy that people even at Solomon Brothers 
were more open to giving you information, to trusting you with their story. You know, Solomon Brothers was a really great place in many ways in that it attracted the most extraordinarily un unusual people. When you think Wall Street guy, that's not what was there. It, it was a rougher character who was there. And even when they were highly educated, they were pe just uh, odd people and uh, interesting people. And so I think actually the, the shallow preppy side of me counted against me at Solomon Brothers. Um, and what they got to, they got to the real me. It, that I, there were times where I almost got in fistfights with people on the trading floor and, um, and the competitive me. And they drew that out of me and they liked that. They got to kind of a different side of me and it was only when they got to that side of me that I got any kind of respect. Um, and so that, I think it was more that. And I think, you know, to this day, I have many, many close friends from that experience who have every right to think I like betrayed them by leaving and writing a book, who just kind of think it's cool that I wrote a book. And, and actually just when they read the book, they just laughed. And that they just thought, ah, it kind of like, it's the kind of thing they would do if that's how they were so inclined. <laughs> and so it was, it was messier than that. It was messier than that. Often people think of you and, and they wonder, how do these subjects sort of entrust you with their stories. And it seems to me that, that your method of building that trust comes from an incident in 1982 where you're out of college looking for a job and you apply to uh, accompany wealthy teenage girls across Europe, <laughs> which is a sentence I have never said on this show. Yeah, that job. It, w it was the most expensive trip that 17-year-old girls ever went on. And the tour group, it was called Brown Lad, um, would hire tour guides from basically from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale. And the parents felt reassured because, my God, these are recent graduates of Princeton, Harvard, and Yale. How bad could it be? Well, let me tell you, it could, it, it doesn't, that doesn't prevent problems. But it was a wonderful trip, and it was a great time. But the, the point of the story is how I got hired, because they were actually extremely desirable jobs. And the fellow who ran the, the company, it was a wonderful guy named Robbie Brown, would have you into his office to interview. So I go to his office to interview, and he's, he's like in a state of chaos and incredibly apologetic. I'm so sorry, I know you were here for the interview, but they've just made me, they're just saying, making me move the furniture from my office to this office down the hall. And he goes, oh, like he just thought of it. Like, could you help, could you help me? So we spent an hour, instead of interviewing, moving this furniture together. And at the end, he goes, I'll call you. We'll figure out another time. And instead of calling me he, to tell, say we figured out another time, he calls me and said, you got the job. Now, flash forward to like four months later, and I'm in a, a, a hotel in, somewhere in, in Belgium. With, and I, we're, we're in bed with the other two leaders. We're, we've got these, you know, we're all bunking together. And I... I mentioned this weird, I like how I got this job thing to these other leaders. And the other one goes, he, I moved that furniture. I moved that, <laughs> I moved that furniture from one office to another. And I realized what he'd done is he's decided that talking to someone is not nearly as good as doing something with them. And that when you do something with someone, you see their, you see their character in action in a way you might not if you're just talking to them. 
So I try to do that with my subjects. And when I'm doing that with my subjects, by definition, they're doing it with me. So they get to see me and I get to see them. Like I'm never more likely to help with the dishes than the first time I have a dinner with at a subject's house. And it isn't because I, I'm naturally the person to help with the dishes, it's that I wanna do something with them. And it's, it's, it is one way, it, it, this is, it's like how you get someone to trust you, but that, that sounds sinister. What I'm trying to really do, because I don't want them to trust me if they don't trust me. Like I don't wanna trick them into trusting me because that will vanish. What I'm hoping to establish is that they can get to know me. I'm gonna let them get to know me. And in getting to know me, they will genuinely trust me. So it's just a trick of how you let someone get to know you. Because you, the last thing I can be, to, with the, to the extent that I'm asking them to let me participate in their lives, there's no way that's gonna happen if I'm just this black box. That they don't, they don't, you know, this is not gonna happen. They, got, they need to understand what interests me. They need to understand how my mind works, what, what I'm kind of thinking about things, uh, how I move through the world, all that's really important. So it's less like an artificial journalist subject relationship than it is just like a, an ordinary relationship. I'm going on a trip with somebody, a total stranger, and I'm gonna to get to know them in the bargain. Now, in 2012, when you embark on doing a six-month piece on Obama, are you ever concerned at some point, he may not like me very much? <laughs> yeah, you know, well, um, with Obama, um, I tell you, it's so funny. The first encounter I had with him was in the Oval Office. And like the first question he asked me, uh, he was saying how much he liked the movie of The Big Short. And he said, did you have anything to do with that? And I said, no. He said, I thought not. I thought it was all Adam McKay. <laughs> he, he was always giving me shit. I mean, he was like from the get-go giving me shit. And from the get-go, I was taking the shit because it was kind of funny shit. But the thing I was interested in writing about him was so not a political piece in a way. It was so, it was just, I want to show the reader what it feels like to be president, no matter what your politics are. Like, this is just the job. It's such a weird job. No matter how well you do it, like some large number of people are going to think you're the devil. And so because he got into the spirit of it, more or less, we never really had that much friction. There was one moment, there was one moment, and it was, it was kind of like I saw a bit of like a flash of, anger is too strong a word, but like contempt. I was trying to force him into a place where he hadn't been in his head before. And so I had half an hour with him. It was on Air Force One. I sat down and I said, I only got 30 minutes this time. I want to play a game. And the game is in 30 minutes, you're like wiped off the planet and I'm going to replace you. I'm going to be president of the United States. 30 minutes, you've got to give me all the advice I need to be a good president of the United States. And it took, I'm telling you, it took five minutes before he agreed to play the game because he kept saying, like, you're not president. You're never, gonna, you're never going to be president. You could never be president. What are you talking <laughs> It was, it was, it was, he, his mind rebelled at the very idea of someone like me assuming his responsibilities. So that, that, um, that was the one moment I saw the kind of like potential contempt. To be fair, weren't you taking a nap prior to that 30 minute interaction? 
Yeah, they came and woke me up. <laughs> that, that, that's well, but it had been a long day. But yes, the, that was off in like a little compartment, and you never knew when they were going to call you. And I think, yeah, they shoved me on the shoulder and they said, President's waiting. <laughs> It was, there are all these boxes you really need to tick if you're going to be president, and I don't tick many of them. Yeah, I, I don't know if nap time is, is, is part of that. <laughs> Your ability to put people in real-life situations, I'm immediately thinking back to one of your most famous characters in Billy Bean and how the two of you would drive to minor league baseball games in Modesto. And it's funny, you know, I've done, as you as you can probably tell, an unreasonable amount of research for this. And something I found in you is your sort of Obama-like resistance to going to places that you may have not gone before or, or rather don't want to go. And I wonder, is it because you spend a lifetime writing other people's stories? Do you, do you better understand your subjects than yourself? Huh. <laughs> even if true it's not that damning because i understand my subjects pretty damn well but it's a um this is fair this is fair and i tell you why it's I, I i you you were close to a nerve that billy bean and i have in our makeup in our kind of psychology a lot in common and um I don't know, I just, and I recognized it pretty quickly. And Billy Bean was the toughest nut to crack. You talked about these drives to Modesto. The reason they ended up being important was that afterwards, it was dark on the way home. And in the darkness of the car, he would say things about, in answers to questions, that he would never speak of if it were, there was light. It was like he had to be, feel alone to say these things. And I, I completely related to that. I completely related to his resistance to any kind of like psychoanalysis and, you know, or even character analysis. And you know what it is? It's his resistance to being understood. Because once you're understood, you're in a box. Once you're understood, you're in a corner. And what Billy Bean, what the, the character trait that I recognized in me, in him that I have, is a kind of claustrophobia. It's we, we're terrified of being trapped. And so we're always kind of looking for where the exit is. And he and this is this expressed itself in the way he managed his baseball team and it expresses itself in the way he manages his life and his friendships. And I'm a bit that way. The minute I feel like a box is closing in on me, I get an ax and I hack off one side of it. I don't spend a lot of time trying to understand myself. At the risk of trying to understand you, there's one character you've come back to many times, another Billy, Billy Fitzgerald. He was your demanding, tough-as-nails high school baseball coach. And he has a poem that he especially likes that I was wondering if you'd be open to reading. Sure. Do you want me to go get it off my wall? I, I have it right here. I, I wasn't going to make it. <laughs> it's on my wall. He sent me a he, he sent me a framed picture of myself pitching my junior year in high school with this poem, and it, he had it on his wall. And I mean, this is a man of dimensions. He's like when you think tough coach, you think sort of like some Hollywood stereotype. This guy is an actual great man in any context. And he, this poem he picked by Robert Francis. It was it's a beautiful description of the art of actually pitching which is what it's supposedly about, but it has something to do with the art of living too. 
and if you put it up, I'm happy to read it. Picture by Robert Francis. His art is eccentricity. His aim, how not to hit the mark he seems to aim at. His passion, how to avoid the obvious. His technique, how to vary the avoidance. The others throw to be comprehended. He throws to be a moment misunderstood, yet not too much, not errant, errant, wild, but every seeming aberration willed, not to yet still, still to communicate, making the batter understand too late. What I love about that poem, because I was a crafty pitcher, I mean, false modesty aside, I had a great curveball and I could throw it in any count and it just, just drove people crazy. And so you were constantly playing with the batter's head to confuse him. And I love that. And in writing, you're doing the same thing. And it's allowing the, the reader to think ill of you sometimes. It's allowing, it's allowing all kinds of things the reader doesn't know you're doing to take them to a place where the equivalent of striking them out is making them understand. And it, it is where I live. I love the feeling and it's, I have ported exactly the feeling I used to get when I'd say, give me the ball, it's my game, it, onto give me the pen, this is my book. And resist people who try to take the ball away from me. Are those editors? Uh, the best editors I've had are exactly like Billy Fitzgerald. They know when to get pissed at me. They know when to walk out and talk to me. And they know when to leave me alone. And uh, Star Lawrence, my editor at Norton, hands coach the little book I wrote about Billy, Billy Fitz, about Billy Fitzgerald to people when he says he wants people to understand who I am. And he instinctively has managed me as a writer just as that, as that coach managed me as a player. Do you think you best understand people upon putting them down on the page? Yes. Otherwise, I'm too lazy. It forces me to grapple with my understanding of them. So in a funny way, I know Charity Dean better than I know, um, you know, my best friend, uh, because I haven't grappled with him in words. In another way, no, knowing in some senses being, uh, the ability to predict, I'm probably better able to predict what my best friend will do than what Charity Dean will do, but, but, but not by much. Uh, the, act of, the act of reducing people to a character on a page leads you to a higher understanding of the person. Your resistance to being understood. That line in the poem, he throws to be a moment misunderstood, yet not too much, not errant, errant, wild, but every seeming aberration willed. That seems to be some understanding of you. There's some truth to that. Absolutely. Absolutely there's truth to that. It's funny, the, the moment we get into sort of psychoanalysis, you, you start talking less. <laughs> Well, you seem to enjoy it so much. I thought I'd give you the mic. <laughs> Trust me, no one wants to hear me analyze you. <laughs> yeah, it's like a therapy session where the therapist just talks. You go back to Princeton in 2012 and you give a speech on the role of luck. And so many people look at your career and, and they think incredibly successful, sort of prodigious talent, um, um, prolific, all these things. And yet, in front of these graduating kids who are finishing this, this great school and are going on to 
start their lives in some way. You say, Don't be deceived by life's outcomes. Life's outcomes, while not entirely random, have a huge amount of luck baked into them. Above all, recognize that if you had success, you've also had luck. And with luck comes obligation. You owe a debt, and not just to your gods. You owe a debt to the unlucky. I was sitting with that today, and, and I wondered, how have you paid that debt? It's a great question. I think about this all the time. Um, and the answer, um, I haven't. I, st- I haven't finished paying that debt. I've got a lot of work to do. But what I try to do is in my daily life, I try to remember that. And I try to look for situations where I can do things for people without them knowing I'm doing it. Because you, when you do it and they know it, you create a kind of debt in them. And sometimes you, you can't avoid it, right? Every year, at the end of the year, I make my resolutions. And I try to resolve once a month to do something that's life-changing for someone. And I never get there, but I like remind myself as a goal. And so that's kind of one way. The second is I try to direct my work in useful directions where it isn't just aesthetics. This is, this is actually requires effort for me because really left to my own devices, I just tell fart jokes and funny stories. So I, I try to put what I can do to some higher use without being pompous or pretentious about it. So, but a little of that. And I try to raise my children to behave this way. I think the truth, like the truth here is, I have had so much luck, it is impossible to repay the debt. But it makes me happy as a person, like moving through life, to try and to think of it that way. That, that there is enormous, like, uh, it's like a life hack. That's how a Silicon Valley person would put it. To stress your own good fortune and distress or emphasize gratitude or look for causes for gratitude, it's amazing the, the knock-on effects that has. It sort of creates more of itself, just like the reverse creates more of itself. So the short answer to your question is, I haven't and never will. The long answer is, I give it a shot. <laughs> At the end of it all, you have this sort of vision about what your funeral will look like. And if you were open to it, I, I would like to, to, to watch something that I believe you feel is representative of what that will look like. I know what it is, but I'd love to see it. It's been a long time. This is a clip from Tim Burton's 2003 film, Big Fish. Have you ever heard a joke so many times you've forgotten why it's funny? And then you hear it again and suddenly it's new. You remember why you loved it in the first place. So he said he'll fight the giant boy 15 feet tall. No way. Dad, that's right, isn't it? Pretty much. See? So he was a giant. That was my father's final joke, I guess. The man tells his stories so many times that he becomes the stories. They live on after him. 
And in that way, he becomes immortal. So maybe to your distress, I'm here and still alive. (laughs) (laughs) I'm alive. So I'm not dead yet. (laughs) But when I saw that movie, I thought that's, that's going to be what my funeral is like. And I tell you why. Because I, meet, I, I wander the world and I meet these characters and I get to write about them. And people never believe they're as good as they are, they are on the page, but they are. And when they meet them, it's like, wow. Yeah, Billy Bean is like that. Or Charity Dean is like that. And the kids in that story, their father was a traveling salesman and he'd come home and tell them these stories about having met a giant or a Siamese twins or whatever it was. And they thought it was just when they, they believed him when they were little. And then when they got old, they didn't believe him. And they thought it was all an act. And then when they, then all of a sudden, all these people actually show up at his funeral. And I do feel that if ever you got all these people I have written about in a room, you'd say, wow, Michael didn't actually have to work that hard. (laughs) This was easy. He just found these people. I'm very much glad you are alive by the way (laughs) thank you very much (laughs) it's a good start for a friendship (laughs) (laughs) and of the work are you proud of it very uh uh, very i i don't i don't put it out there unless i'm proud of it and i don't think less of it because of what happens to it out in the world i it's yeah i really like what i do and i and my the, my own things interest me up to the point where they're published. And it's been uh, a sheer delight that other people are willing to kind of go along for that ride. Well, I thank you for going along on this ride with me for the show. It was a surprising but a fun one. Michael Lewis, thank you very much. Thanks, Sam. was Michael Lewis and I in conversation. Michael's new audiobook edition of Liar's Poker will be available in your Against the Rules feed this February. Until then, you can hear more interviews like the one you just heard on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso. Some of my personal favorite episodes are with George Saunders, Steven Soderbergh, Edward Norton, Laura Dern, Noam Chomsky, Dave Eggers, Nikki Giovanni, and Gloria Steinem. You can find all of those and more on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on TalkEasyPod.com or on Instagram and Twitter at TalkEasyPod. Special thanks today to Caitlin Dryden, Andre Lynn, Caroline Reebok, and of course, Michael Lewis. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richman, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Jacob Weisberg, and Malcolm Gladwell. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thanks for listening. <laughs>